Ladies and gentlemen, it's the Latent Space Weekend edition. Woohoo! This weekend is a special one as we are gathering many of our former and upcoming guests and over 10,000 of you for our very first AI Engineer Summit, both in San Francisco and on YouTube. We were interviewed by a few of our fellow AI podcasters about the summit and figured we would cross-post them over the weekend to help you prepare, even if you can't join us in person. Now, we'll have a very current episode recorded with Nathan LeBenz of Cognitive Revolution, where we discussed how to hire AI engineers, key tools for AI engineers, skepticism around AI being a fad, the AI engineer conference speaker lineup, and then an hour of AI podcast inside baseball around the future of AI agents, multimodal chat GPT, and AI horcruxes. While you are listening, there are two things you can do to be part of the AI engineer experience. One, join the AI engineer summit Slack. Two, Take the State of AI Engineering survey and help us get to 1,000 respondents. Both are linked in the show notes, and we would really love to have you. Now here's Swix's conversation on the cognitive revolution. Swix, welcome to the cognitive revolution. Thanks. I've been a longtime listener and very excited to be a first-time caller. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, glad to have you here. And I'm also a big fan of your work with the Latent Space podcast the newsletter and uh, also looking forward to what you guys are putting together with the AI Engineer Summit, which is coming up in just a couple days. So I'm excited to get into all of that with you. Yeah, happy to dive into that. We did a cross post, I think, uh, a few months ago, and I really liked your deep dive into the Tiny Stories stuff. Uh, and that's the, that's the one that we featured on our feed. And so like, I, I feel like you go, you have the room to go much more in depth than, than us. Um, so I really appreciate the, the, the work that you're doing, uh, going like these like two hour things with researchers. It's, uh, it's really impressive. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I guess for starters, I thought we'd kind of organize this by taking a little bit of like a broad view uh, survey of your work over the last year or so. Um, as far as I know, you've coined this term AI engineer. And so I guess I wanted to start off by just kind of asking you like, what is an AI engineer? I'm fascinated in general by these like new AI jobs, right? We've got the prompt engineer and kind of a few different things have been put forward. It seems like the AI engineer, though, might have more staying power uh, than like the prompt uh, engineer. So how do you think about that new emerging role? Yeah, I definitely think of prompt engineering as like still 2022 and AI engineering as still 2023. Um, and I feel like this is a controversial take a little bit because everyone should be able to use AI. Uh, there, there, There is no restriction on you know who does and does not use AI. But I do think that people who are choosing to specialize in the AI stack probably deserve a full-time role that describes what they do. And out of all the possible names that people have proposed, like cognitive engineer, um, LLM engineer, probably the one that is going to win is AI engineer. And so I'm not so much pointing it as observing that this is a trend that's happening and uh, putting all my chips on 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 red, as as, as they say. Um, so the AI engineer is a software engineer specializing in AI um, and the, and the emerging AI stack. And ML engineer is not an ML researcher. Both of which are much more established roles and much more on the sort of research oriented and ML ops side of the fence. It is everything to do with what happens after you have a model in production and maybe with a little bit of fine tuning, which is, as everybody knows, uh, just extra training on top of uh, the, the, the vast amount of pre-training that has already been done. And I think it's basically an emerging category for a few reasons. Uh, it's more or less just demand and supply. And you know, I started life as a finance and economics guy. I was a trader and hedge fund um, guy for 
uh, quite a few years before I was a developer. And I, de- I just think it's just pure demand and supply. You know, there's maybe like 5,000 good LLM engineers in the world, uh, LLM researchers in the world, and you cannot hire them like as, as the average company, average startup, whatever. Uh, there's just, there's no way you'll, you'll ever actually build, you'll be able to build this talent in-house. For better or worse, these models are now available as APIs or as open source models. There will be a corresponding rise in demand to, for engineers who are capable of putting them to use, even though they don't necessarily train them as a on the on sort of foundation model research basis. I do think that there will be a rise in this category of the AI engineer. And there's definitely a rise in startups serving that category. And so I've pivoted late in space, the newsletter, the podcast, and now the conference, um, all towards serving this persona, which I identify to be one of them. Yeah, I think I would count myself uh, among the AI engineers as well. I probably, I guess I probably come to it from a somewhat non-standard background, but maybe you can tell me like, where do you see the AI engineers coming from? Are they mostly software engineers who've kind of just taken an interest in AI and gone down the rabbit hole, so to speak? Or are there other backgrounds that you see as well? Yeah, they're going to be most, mostly software engineers uh, taking interest in and in getting deeper in AI. In the post that I wrote on Namespace, uh, the, the, the key visual to have in mind is this kind of left to right spectrum of research constraints work versus product and customer constrained work. Um, and, or basically how much, how close are you to machine learning research or how close are you to applications of that research? And so uh, on the far left, it's, it's the research scientists and the ML researchers. It's a little bit further along is the ML engineers, data scientists as well, I would, I would class within that category. After you sort of put those models into production, then you get the AI engineers, which are the sort of emergent category. And then finally, the full stack generalist engineers who are working on just like you know, the last mile of uh, UI and UX uh, to, to deliver to AI products to, to people. And so I think just like this, this emerging category of AI engineers, it's much more people on the right hand side of the spectrum, the software engineers moving left into AI. So they're learning this, they're suddenly learning what tokenizers are and what embeddings are and what vector databases are and why prompting uh, chain of thought um, makes sense rather than uh, zero shot generation of stuff. Um, and then uh, it, it is it's much more likely to be people from the right moving left than people from the left moving right, uh, meaning the ML engineers and data scientists moving right into applications, even even though you do get those. Uh, so, for example, Raza Habib, my, my most recent guest uh, from Human Loop, has a PhD in probabilistic programming with uh, deep neural networks, but he's working on an LLM off solution just because he sees that a lot more people can be served that way. So there, there are people with all sorts of backgrounds, but I do think it's primarily software engineers. We've had a somewhat of a parallel trajectory in the podcasting game over the last few months. Raz was also an um, early guest because I've been a customer of Human Loop since early this year and definitely have got a lot of value from uh, the platform. Now starting to use it also to, I think, really getting to the, the part of the vision that they probably had in mind early on, which is the really accessible fine-tuning loop that they've enabled. And um, we just did an episode kind of going down that rabbit hole a little bit, talking about like, I think my number one insight there was using GPT-4 reasoning as part of the fine-tuning data set for 3.5 as a way to really, in my experience, dramatically improve the results. And that was a um, something that Human Loop made much, much easier than it otherwise would have been. It's funny because I had already been a customer for months, but I hadn't used all the latest stuff. And then I was like kind of thinking to myself, like, how am I going to kind of code up my own loop to do this? Uh, And then thought, well, I should check Human Loop and see what all the latest features are. And sure enough, they had done a really nice job of anticipating the need and 
really streamlining that process. So uh, what do you think are the key skills for the AI engineer? If I, if I were to come to you and say, okay, I've got a background in software development, you know, I've played around with chat GPT and, you know, almost everybody's like at least used Copilot or something like that at this point. Where do I go from there to make myself employable as an AI engineer? What, what, are, the comp- what are the employers, the, the app developers most need? Yeah, totally. I think that's where most people start, which is use the off-the-shelf models that, are, that have the most adoption and that is going to be Copilot and ChatGPT. Um, I do think I have been mapping this out. So if you go to the About page on Latent Space, um, we also have an emerging email course that we call Latent Space University to trigger the Louisiana State University fans. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and it's kind of mapping out the, the curriculum of what I expect to be the baseline competencies of an AI engineer. Like, just write the job title. Like, what, what, what do you expect people to do? And I think I want to ground this in a very practical manner because it's a demand and supply issue. Companies are trying to hire these people and people are trying to learn to be useful to companies so that they can uh, be part of the AI movement, uh, but then also apply their, their engineering uh, knowledge towards building use, useful and interesting things. Um, and so uh, I'll just kind of list through some of them, but we can go into more details as needed. The high-level themes are AI UX, AI coding tools, LLM tooling, AI infra and inference hardware, and that includes fine-tuning as well. Uh, and then finally, the most speculative would be AI agents, which everyone has been talking about but doesn't have that much practical use. Um, so I, I think there's definitely a trade-off between what people actually use at work versus what people just like to talk about on Twitter and star on GitHub uh, and promise AGI without actually doing anything. Um, <laughs> so maybe that might be a hot take there. Um, in my course, uh, so we have a seven-day free sort of email course type of thing. And, and that's meant to be like, I'm never going to make money from that. That's just meant to be like, a, like, start here if you want to learn AI engineering or your software engineer has never dealt with any of these APIs. Um, so day one would be just try the GPT API for the first time. Uh, and just a, a lot of a lot of software engineers just haven't bothered. And I think you'll be surprised at how much controls, uh, how much, how many options there are available, um, thinking about running into the context limit for the first time, which you know, ChatGPT and Copilot kind of hide away for you. Um, and just like get familiar with all those basics. I think it's very important. Day two will be prompt tooling and memory. And that's where you get into like the vector databases and the lang chains and all that. And those are just kind of frameworks that will hopefully help with the developments. And, and I do encourage people to kind of build some extractions of these themselves before using something off the shelf, you know, so you get a better understanding. Um, day three is code generation. Day four is image generation. Day five is speech to text. Day six, fine tuning and running open source models. And then day seven is building an agent. Um, and I think once you've finished that sort of little sampler course or like a tour, you have the base capabilities that I expect every AI engineer should have such that whenever any PM or any CEO comes to you with like, hey, I have an AI product that I would like to build. Is this possible? You can figure out if you can build it or you can just tell them like, hey, it's not possible for X, Y, and Z reasons. You know, that, that way like you'll be useful as an AI engineer. So that's really interesting because this is like, uh, you know, the old XKCD, somebody's wrong on the internet, right? I almost have my own version of that with people posting GPT-4 can't do X <laughs> things when in fact, like it definitely can. And they're either in many cases, like using the wrong model or prompting it wrong or doing like a bunch of things that are wrong. So I actually find that people often come to wrong conclusions about what AI can and can't do today. Obviously, it's a fast moving frontier. So like your value of knowledge decays pretty quickly. 
I mean, seven days definitely seems like a, enough, especially if you really go for it. To and this is like a remarkable thing, right? The part of what I love about the AI space in general is just that you can kind of jump right into the frontier. I think that's just extremely cool and super fun. And I would think most technologists would agree with that. Uh, so I do think like a seven day, you know, intensive is a pretty reasonable amount of time to like get mostly up to speed. I guess if there was one thing I would wonder about, it would be would folks after that kind of intensive have a well-developed sense for what really is or isn't possible? And like, how would you coach people maybe on like continuing to refine their sense of what is and isn't possible? Because I see way too many people just giving up too soon. Yeah. Hmm. This is interesting. So first of all, I actually wouldn't describe the course as intensive. It's just an email course. It's meant to take an hour a day. Uh, it's probably, and then we leave breadcrumbs for people to, to explore with a lot more details and suggestions for side projects and stuff. I think that if you want to be up to speed, there's a vast gulf between, hey, cover the fundamentals and be, be cutting edge. Because the, the people who are cutting edge are the people who are hiding in discords and on Twitter and talking about very niche jargony stuff that you won't even see for a few months out. So I don't really know if like, that's a realistic goal for most people. I think most people want to make sure they cover the fundamentals and then be able to build most projects that you've seen out there that make money. And ultimately, I, I think that's what most people want. Um, to be cutting edge means you have to go down a lot of uh, rabbit holes. And uh, I'm not exactly sure if I would recommend that for most people, because that is a full-time job in and of itself, <laughs> which is why, by the way, I, I call it an AI engineer, because I, I, you know, I, I do think that this deserves a separate category or a job title, because it's, this is a full-time job keeping up on, on things. But I do have a recommendation, which is I have a list of Twitter people to follow. Um, I have a list of Discord communities that I watch. And obviously, a list of podcasts and newsletters, which I recommend, uh, which you're definitely on. Um, so all of those are on my GitHub. Uh, I have an AI Notes GitHub where I, where I link to all these lists of Twitter, YouTube, podcasts, and newsletter people. Um, by the way, we're also running a survey uh, of uh, who people listen to. So a little bit of a market share competition going on. Uh, and if you, if you want to Google state of AI engineering survey, you can get a sense of who people are listening to. Um, and, and I think that's important to understand, like, like what drives people's attention towards uh, individual projects. Uh, that is something that I should keep note of as well. Yeah, interesting. I'll have to I'll definitely subscribe to your Twitter list, which I did not know that you had out there. But I do actually get most of my stuff, I think, first from Twitter still. And then definitely have like a ton of discords that I've joined over time as well. So I have this little project where it basically scans discords on a daily basis and then summarizes them into an email. And I'm wondering if I should just release that as like a thing that people can subscribe for. Because I think it'll be kind of popular, but also very noisy. Because people discuss, discuss all sorts of things in Discord. And like, it might not actually make sense. <laughs> well, I mean, that's kind of the AI challenge in general, right? Is like, how reliable can we make these things? I definitely think if you could get it to work well, it would be valuable. I'm, I've got to be in, I don't know, 50 different discords at this point, And it is super noisy in there. And I honestly kind of, I join them. I'll often kind of scan around, see what's happening, you know, see what discussion is there. And then often I don't really come back very much. So good God, the number of, you know, discord notifications have become unmanageable. So that just kind of gets tuned out. So I actually wonder if, maybe I, if there would be a way to 
intercept the notifications or kind of use that as a, a particular signal as opposed to like, you know, having to kind of grab and summarize everything. I do think if, if it worked well and it, w- it could kind of create an auto GPT style digest of the news from all these different projects of interest, I definitely think that would be really interesting. I might release that as a side project. Uh, I don't know how popular it will be, but I think it definitely solves a pain point for myself. It's funny because I, I was one of our unreleased episodes that we just recorded is with Jeremy Howard from Fast.ai. And in his recent post, he had a post recently on sort of one shot learning or like sudden uh, drops in the, the, the loss curves, trying to figure out like the origins of that. And he mentioned the Alignment Lab Discord. And I always just find these discords of very elite LM people just to emerge from nowhere. Like News Research is another one. I'll just throw these names out there uh, for people who want to find it. They're all on my list, so you can go check it out. But like, how do you find them as they're emerging? Because like, you know, most people found out about Eleuther AI after Eleuther was forming and it's, you know, the core community was already established. And now it's kind of, you know, uh, people have, have departed Eleuther into what I've been calling the sort of Eleuther Mafia recently. Uh, Eleuther is still going, obviously. And I just don't find like, you want to join these communities when they're early and like, you know, everyone's still trying to figure it out and building something interesting. And Jeremy said, like, most of this stuff is also happening in private channels, not public channels. So it's just an extra wall garden in, inside of a wall garden. And just joining Discord isn't enough. You have to invest enough to, to get access to the <laughs> private channels is what I'm saying. I need to get myself uh, invited to some more private channels. For, for what it's worth, the bar for the in-space Discord is you show up, you introduce yourself, you're, you're invited in. Um, so. <laughs> well, I appreciate your inclusive approach. A few more just kind of general state of the field questions, and then I want to kind of shift toward the event that you have coming up soon and, and talk a little bit about kind of where things are going as well. The tooling for AI engineers, if, if I understood you correctly earlier, it seems like the pattern is mostly identifying the best available tools and then figuring out how to make those work together as opposed to, you know, obviously you kind of distinguish this from like deep ML research, but even from like self-hosting, it seems like most of these things are kind of services that people are figuring out how to put in concert and not too often spinning up their own services at this point. Is that accurate? Sure. Even though they, they absolutely can, right? Like this is the power of an engineer that you could decide to build versus buy at every point in time. And that's always a fun topic of conversation whenever you need to build versus buy. When you think about that build versus buy, like that's such a common debate, obviously. And it's like a tricky one for a lot of folks because the tension that I experience is like, I want to be early to market, if not first to market, right? Like in my company, Waymark, it's like, I want to be the, we have this video maker. I want to be the first video maker that does like A, B, and C, X, Y, and Z for you. And to do that, you know, you kind of have to build more than you would have to build if you just waited a little while, because, you know, if you have a little patience, then sure enough, you know, the market kind of provides solutions for a lot of these things that you need. So I think it's obviously super contextual, but I wonder how, if you have like any sort of framework or kind of general you know, high level view of how people should be thinking about build versus buy, especially given how quickly things are coming online for us to be able to buy. I generally have a pretty vendor friendly version of this because I, I have been a developer relations person for five years. And, but, but I also am very sympathetic to the choose boring technology, uh, try to 
limit your dependencies as much as possible mindset. Um, and so basically, I, typically what I often say is buy first. And then the moment you understand your domain well enough, be, a, be in a position to be able to build yourself. And this way, you get the benefits of people setting you on the right path uh, with, with best practices that they've learned from everyone else. But you're, you're ready at this point to understand that this field is so immature, you may have to rewrite, you may have to rip out something that you started not liking. So this was the topic of a lot of discussion this summer with Langchain where a lot of people did had this exact journey, right? Like they, they, they started out building an asset Langchain and they ran into a lot of problems that maybe Langchain wasn't well designed for and then they ripped out Langchain and they said Langchain is crap. And I think that's kind of unfair to Langchain just because uh, it, they're evolving as well. I mean, the, the company is less than a year old, <laughs> you know? Um, so I think it, it's fine. Like every, everyone, like if, you're, if you chose to be in this field, you are choosing to be on the cutting edge and sometimes the cutting edge cuts you. And that's what they do. That's the nature of these things. I would say basically buy off the shelf first and understand what people are building out there because you plug into existing communities of people who have encountered these problems for far longer and have dealt with them and thought with them much deeper than you have. Um, and then anything that you don't understand or don't, still, you know, don't appreciate after working with them for a few weeks, then you can rip them out and build your own, right? But like, I, I think at this point, um, you know, we have on our show notes like Human Loop, Guardrails, and Langchain. Uh, these are fairly well-established frameworks among the community that you should at least understand as table stakes for what AI engineering is today, just because there's been a few hundred thousand people ahead of you mapping all these things out. What other tools would you put on that list? I mean, we, we talked a little bit about Human Loop as kind of, you know, just to set the level there, a at least the way I think about it, uh, first is kind of a playground in which to develop prompts. So my workflow is I go there and I workshop a prompt until I get it working reasonably well. Then the reason I do it there as opposed to anywhere else is because I can hit save. And then immediately I have an API that I can call that basically puts all the prompt management stuff on the human loop platform so that all I have to do as a developer from outside is just provide a couple variables, you know, one or more, whatever I set up. Uh, and that makes it super easy to develop against. Then I can also update my prompt without having to do code changes, which is quite nice. And they log everything for me and allow me to, you know, kind of come in later and post-process it, evaluate it, uh, export certain subsets of data, which I might use to, you know, power fine-tuning uh, based on like the most successful data points, whatever. That's really cool. We've had uh, Shreya from Guardrails on the show a while back as well. You want to give your take on Guardrails and, and how that's used? Yeah, um, Guardrails is, I would say, in the uh, output validation side of the fence. And, you know, as the name implies, it puts sort of safety rails on what generative AI does, specifically generative text. And I would say it is competing somewhat with the, the other orchestration frameworks because everyone, there's, a, there's only one room for the uh, sort of LLM interface layer and everyone's fighting for it. Human wants to be in that interface so they can track everything. Um, and so, so do all the other LLM ops and prompt ops companies is what, they, what they'd be calling. Um, in my podcast within Raza called it the foundation model ops companies, but they all effectively have the same thing, right? Like we'll track inversion, manage your prompts and then we'll, we'll eval them and then we'll like, you know, uh, we'll track your costs too and track your latencies and uh, whatever, right? Like they all have the same roadmap because it's, it's fund fundamentally an ops product. And guardrails and line chain, slightly different. Uh, they're much more in the sort of application framework side of the fence 
with an uh, open source first and, and monetization second. Um, and guardrails would do things like validate that the SQL generated is correct if you're, if you're trying to use AI to generate SQL. They used to have sort of output validation. Uh, Langchain also has this, by the way, output validation for valid JSON if you're, if you're sort of outputting valid JSON. And that went away when <laughs> obviously OpenAI uh, came out with its own version of that. And so I think the roadmaps with these sort of orchestration or application LM specific frameworks will evolve. Um, but guardrails is much more focused on safety and production readiness, uh, let's say, and Langchain much more on the orchestration, even though they collide on uh, some features, because all of them are building each other's features. Yeah, that's super interesting. Let's come back to that in a second and get a little bit more into the competitive dynamics. But before we do, and this um, you know, starts to give you an opportunity to talk about the upcoming AI Engineer Summit as well, but you know, that and and more broadly, how would you suggest that people go about looking for AI engineers today? Some, you know, whether you're whatever kind of company you, you might be, right? Software application company, or, you know, I would say, honestly, any company that has kind of a lot of operational overhead could probably make great use of an AI engineer, even if they're not putting a, you know, a, a public facing or customer facing application out there necessarily. What do you look for if you're hiring that skill set? You know, it's so new. People are like lost. They, they, you know, people are kind of just looking for somebody to tell them what to do. But obviously that creates a lot of opportunities for them to hire somebody that doesn't really know, you know, what to do. So if you don't have the skill set yourself, like where do you go to look for it? How do you evaluate it? And of course, you know, the, the upcoming summit, you know, could be one of, of those places. I honestly, I really should set up a job board. Um, I've been chatting with a couple of companies on like, hey, I need someone to just set up a job board. You know, I don't even have to make money on these things. Um, I just want to make sure that people who are looking for others, whether it's, you know, you're hiring or you're wanting to be hired, uh, you have a common place to match. Um, right now, it's on Twitter. You know, anyone like actively talking and shipping projects is, is uh, fair game. Um, within Discords, like in the latent space Discord, we have a hiring channel and people can people post jobs there. And I know people have gotten hired off of there as well. I think just like regular channels and communities um, posting in like the monthly sort of who is hiring job posting boards on, on Hacker News. That's that's typically the way I would recommend these things. And obviously uh, coming to AI engineering conferences and talking with people who are also attending, uh, that, that tends to be a very high signal <laughs> filter for uh, who's, very, who's very engaged. Um, and I would say like, you know, especially if you yourself are not an AI engineer and you want to hire someone who is an AI engineer, the kind of core competencies that we listed out earlier in this podcast, you know, the, uh, that we have on the about page that we have on the latent space university curriculum, um, uh, is what I would expect a bare minimum for people to understand, um, for working as an AI engineer. And I don't think it stops there. Um, because I do think that a core requirement that you cannot really test for, you just have to sort of observe in an AI engineer is that they are kind of entrepreneurial. They, they're, they're kind of they're comfortable with things that are not that well defined uh, because prompt engineering is not that well defined uh, because the, the model landscape shifts every single month with the release of a new model or whatever. Um, they have to be able to be on the ball and proactive and not just, hey, we are, you know, I'm a, I'm a sort of data scientist and, uh, and now I do LLMs now and, and, and now I'm an AI engineer. Um, and I don't think that that is the kind of person that will put your business at the cutting edge of what you can do with generative AI. They, they have to be a little bit entrepreneurial. They have to proactively come to you with ideas instead of saying, 
um, hey, we'll you know throw an LLM layer on, on top of the existing app, um, which is totally fine. But like, I do think that especially for me and especially like the the, the high, people hiring that I talk to, they want someone who's a little bit entre- entrepreneurial. So people who can just kind of like ship their own projects and and um, and get the, get attention for them or like use new techniques and put them in practice. Um, and I, I do have some in, in sort of the rise of the AI engineer blog post. There's some sort of role models that I uh, do highlight. You know, the, I think the entire Vercel team has been doing an awesome job of showing what it is like to be entrepreneurial, right? Even though they're not a foundation model team, um, they can put these things to good use and in a way that is appealing to enough people that they get millions of users uh, on their free projects. And I think that is something that every company should have. And that is very much the ethos of the kind of AI engineer that I want to encourage. Why are not all software engineers jumping at the chance to be AI engineers? It seems like there's something weird going on there. If somebody says to me today, oh, these AIs, they'll never be really useful. They're not that useful. There's no good use cases, whatever. The first thing I would say is code, okay? Like you can, you know, question anything, but you really cannot question the utility of a co-pilot and you definitely cannot question the utility of coding with GPT-4. It is... You know, for me, I would say a multiple speed up safely. And I maybe am not like the very best software developer in the absence of GPT-4. But like, you know, I've got pl- plenty of experience and definitely can make stuff work. Given how powerful it is for developers in their existing workflows and, you know, and the fact that it's like kind of been integrated into their tools before most other tool sets, what am I missing? Why is it not the case that like everybody is kind of gravitating this way? Yeah, I do think there's some baseline skepticism about whether or not this is a fad. And a lot of people have been burned by effectively crypto. It's a very fair thing to have some skepticism about anything new. It's a very fair thing to have some self-doubt over your credentials. Like, do you need a PhD to make progress in this field? And very much like why I'm trying to promote the AI engineer is to encourage the idea that no, you actually don't uh, need credentials to to make progress in this field because everyone is effectively uncredentialed. When transformers themselves are six years old, and when GPT three itself is three years old, then you know m- many of the techniques and the companies that we talk about in this space are all less than one year old and all making tremendous progress in AI. And by the way, uh, you know uh, one of the big biggest promoters of the AI engineer concept is Andre Karpathy, who's who very kindly supported the, the the concept with the idea that there should be more AI engineers than ML engineers, and they'll be very successful without training anything. So I think there's, there's some mix of skepticism about AI being a fad. And then there's some mix of self-skepticism about whether they can contribute in AI. And then there's always like fundamental misalignments or some fundamental doubts about the stochastic parrots argument, right? Whether or not just multiplying a bunch of matrices can actually approach anything regarding simulated intelligence, which we can always talk about in sort of like those kind of dorm room hallway style conversations, like what is consciousness, what is <laughs> what is intelligence? But I, I mean, you and I know, like, especially we're coding with, with AI, like these things are actual productivity enhancers. And they've gone from single line autocomplete to function autocomplete to code base, entire code base generation. They can help you as tools of thought, you know, with a human in the loop, or they can function without humans in the loop, all of which we're going to see uh, as part of the conference, right? And, and that kind of leads us, the more and more you have this sort of AI in the driving seat, that leads you more and more towards autonomous agents. There's a wide spectrum of AI as sort of autocomplete, all the way to AI as autonomous agents. 
And I do think you just kind of have to pick your line of like where you think usefulness currently is and, and understand that that will probably move over time. We have about six orders of magnitude more improvements in terms of scaling, according to Nat Friedman, until the end of the decade. So take whatever we have today and project forward. Yeah, it's going to get wild. Kind of pretty hard to imagine what pops out the other end of a million fold uh, more compute than went into GPT-4. So tell me about the speaker lineup. I went through, there's 28, I counted uh, speakers shown on the website. I was proud to have had seven uh, on the podcast as former guests, which was pretty cool. And it seems like you're basically kind of creating a lineup that covers kind of all the inputs, basically, that an AI engineer would need, right? From foundation models to these kind of frameworks to the quality control measures. And then there's like a number of folks from agent startups as well. Run that down. And particularly on agents, I'd love to hear your perspective. I wonder, is that something that you see as being like the next thing that's going to come on for the AI engineer to tap into? Or is that kind of a different sort of thing where it's like, those more are the AI engineers that are building the coolest new stuff on those lower levels? I basically put together from my network, uh, all the top speakers that I thought were building interesting things for AI engineers, and specifically for more more technical audience, because there's other conferences happening all you know all this fall in San Francisco, um, but they're all very high high in general, and they spend a lot of time talking about policy, safety, regulation, and uh, copyright, and all those things. But for builders, I think there there wasn't a builder specific conference until mine came along, and then obviously OpenAI had to had to top it with uh, Dev Day, which which we can also talk about, uh, which I think you and I are also going. Which is I'm very excited. We should do a live podcast on Dev Day. Uh, yeah, we have people from um, AutoGPT is our presenting sponsor with OpenAI, with Microsoft speaking, uh, Notion speaking, Amazon speaking, and GitHub. Like all these are top names, I think, in the AI engineering field. But I also wanted to balance it out with names that you've never heard of, like Mithun Hansar from from the sort of Rust LLM community is is speaking. Um, and we, but we also you know have like uh, the first, I, I think one of the world's first demos of Adept, uh, one of the world's first demos of New Computer. Um, and just trying to get a, a mix of like projects that you've never seen before. So like Lindy is a very, uh, very, very high agent project that they've never done a public talk here. And, and so, so I think we're, we're trying to be the stage where people kind of launch these new features, uh, new products, projects for the first time to provoke some thought and then balance it out with people who talk more about sort of active production issues. So I think one misperception of AI is it's all greenfield. It's all, you know, 20 something year olds building toy projects is not actually in serious work. And uh, so, so I want to balance it out with uh, um, Eugene from Amazon, who is running Amazon Books and <laughs> with, with language models, you know, uh, and, and Abi Aryan, who's, who just finished the uh, O'Reilly book on LLM ops in production. People like that who are actually implementing AI in like large-scale production systems. Um, Hex and uh, Prefex are, are also speaking uh, with us on, on how to pivot an existing non-AI company into an AI company. And I think both of them have done fantastic job of that. So I'm kind of curating this list. Um, I do have very large gaps that I'm very conscious of, right? So I don't have image generation people and I don't have that much infrastructure people, base tens and replicates of the world. And I would like to feature them next year. Um, I just had a limited schedule of, of a two-day single track conference. The, the underlying thing about behind this conference is I'm, I'm trying to basically create the ICML for engineers. So ICML, the International Conference of Machine Learning, is like the ultimate, like, if you go to one conference a year, that's the conference you go to if you're a machine learning researcher. There's no equivalent for the engineer. Um, and so what we're trying to do is like tr- try to 
offer that. And it, so this thing was going to grow over time. I, I kind of see this as like a 10-year commitment um, towards building the ultimate survey of the field in, in, in any given point in time for engineers. I'm jealous that you have uh, a demo from Flo and Lindy, among uh, a bunch of other cool stuff as well. I had him on as an early guest and uh, continue to follow their you know, progress from little hints they give out to the public. But I still have not been able to get into uh, that thing, even as a, an alpha user. So be very, very curious to see what they're about to show off. I'm, ex- I'm very excited too. Um, and honestly, uh, you know, I, I think uh, you, you're doing you're doing a great job with, with your reports as well. And I'd love to have you as a as a speaker in in, in uh, the next iteration. Um, but yeah, I, I, maybe I'll talk. I'll spend a bit of time talking about agents, right? Which is a very very hot topic. So I, I would say, um, you know, maybe the, the surprise now is that AutoGPT is obviously now a company, uh, being one of the fastest growing open source projects ever. <laughs> uh, I think I think there's a ton of interest in in what they're doing, and Torin will be speaking. Uh, on our stage, I think for his first time ever as a conference speaker. Um, so I think that will be super exciting. I do think that there's a range of agent type projects, right? So um, the open source agents uh, definitely tend to be sort of single use, <laughs> I would say. Like the, uh, their goal is really trying to optimize for the, what's the one most impressive thing that you can do in a single you know, short video recording or Twitter screenshot. And I, I do think like that, that really is pushing the boundaries in terms of like what is possible. And then obviously being open source, people can actually uh, go through the source code and, and copy ideas off of that. And I think a lot of people have done that with um, both AutoGPT and maybe AGI. And um, I think the, the closed source um, agent type companies like the Adets, like the, like the Lindys, um, like the new computers and, and you know, um, the others that are the people working on here, um, they tend to work on very mo- much more mundane, but daily use type of use cases because they're trying to work towards like, what would you subscribe for? Like on a $20 a month, $100 a month subscription. I think both approaches are valid. Um, and I do think that you need to have representation for, for, from both. The amount of human intervention is something that people are trying to get a grip of because the way that AutoGPT does it is they basically ask you for a confirmation step before they do anything. Um, and like, that's fine, but that's not autonomy. That's just like, you know, assisted prompting, whatever. What you want is to fire and forget. Like that, that is where ultimately these things have to go. You know, where I sit in San Francisco, cruises and Waymo's are now common modes of transportation. And literally I just get in a car, I never talk to anyone and it just it brings me to a destination. That's what I want. Um, and we might be permanently for a while, at least five to 10 years away from full self-driving in agents. <laughs> which is which is where self driving was like ten years ago, you know. So I, I I do think like this is one of those the, the most speculative areas. Um, but I have seen some of these demos live, you know, because I'm friends with most of the speakers that they are featuring, and I will say like they are useful today. So they may look trivial now, but there's active research going on towards making them more and more substantial. I'd love to hear more about specifically like what use you have been able to get out of any of the agents. I've kind of played around with everything I've been able to get my hands on as well. And I recently called them broadly as a class, like still just for fun. Yes. Although I don't think it will stay that way. In fact, if if anything, I would say maybe I would put my timeline to AI agents, you know, kind of crossing whatever chasm they need to cross. Probably short, if I understood you correctly, probably shorter than, you know, multiple years. I think i I'd probably put my money more on like, I guess, kind of the anthropic timeline, if you will. You know, Dario has said in a couple interviews that, you know, they're going to... Two years to AGI. 
Come on. Yeah, something along those lines. I mean, I can't confidently rule anything out at this point. I'm not confident that that will happen. It does seem like probably the biggest question in the whole space right now is like, does the current paradigm get to the ability to do sort of insightful work of the sort that currently humans are kind of the only things that are able to do? You could come short of that, though, and still have like very useful agents, right, that can like decompose, you know, somewhat complicated tasks and reliably execute on them. I mean, there, there's, you know, a lot of different places on this spectrum of AI progress we could zoom in on. But I'd love to hear your your take on both why you think AGI is farther off than that. And, you know, then coming in a little bit toward AI agents or taking them whatever you want. But also on the AI agent side, I would be thinking like a year from now, they probably will be working well and like reasonably commonplace. But it sounds like you're maybe not expecting it to happen that fast. I think this will happen in gradations. Uh, and this is one, one maybe difference between uh, our two podcasts. I, I tend to not discuss AGI. I, I tend to not discuss timelines, even though obviously there's some implicit assumption of them in, in everything that we do. Uh, just because like, it's so hard to predict the future and like, it's not falsifiable in any way. So it's just, it's just a fun dinner topic uh, conversation. I, so I will say like, there are some categories which I'm more interested in than others, right? Like, so um, the original founding prompt of AutoGPT was I want to increase my net worth. That kind of category of agents, not interested in. Like, that's, that's too general for me. That's, that's too AGI, bro science But like, uh, there are very limited scoped agents, which I think are useful today. I, I have a piece on agents, which was relatively popular that I wrote in April. Um, and, I, and I said, actually, the most useful agents that I use today is one that has no LLMs in it at all. And that's the Savvy Cal or Calendly agent, <laughs> right? Because I, I, I send you a link and then like, you schedule a meeting with me on, at your own convenience. And if you need to reschedule or cancel, uh, it just happens on your side of the fence. And it just kind of happens autonomously without me. And that is kind of the experience I just want for all my agents. And the fact that we don't have that with LLM-enabled agents is a problem. And we, we're, we're, we're going to sort of slowly emerge uh, to get there. Um, the second form of agents, which I think have kind of already proven, uh, proven themselves relatively successful is code interpreter or advanced data analysis, as it is now known, because it can generate code, run that code, and then use the output of the code to decide whether or not it needs to fix that code or to stop. And that is the beginnings of a loop that uh, is basically required for agents to have some level of autonomy in decision making. And um, if you sort of break that, break that down even further, you need uh, some ability for planning and prioritization. You need a broader set of tools. You need memory to go with it. And then you need uh, ways to interact with the outside world, whether, whether it's sort of uh, generating text or um, you know, manipulating some kind of UI. I think those are sort of like the, the agent's research. Um, for those who are interested, definitely read Lillian Wang from OpenAI. Um, her blog on agents, I think, is one of the most comprehensive survey overviews of like, the research in agents uh, to date. So I think some categories of those will emerge, right? Like, so um, one of the people that I forgot to mention, Deddy from Codium AI, um, that's an that's a com- Israeli company that raised an $11 million seed uh, <laughs> for, for building sort of coding agents. They only focus on test generation as an agent. To have an agent sort of independently running around generating tests in your code base and then for you to accept, reject them. I think that's a relatively scaled problem. Then I, yeah, I would be perfectly happy to agree with you. It will probably be useful and commonplace in a year. But things where, which require a lot more self-driving and a lot more, uh, have a lot more degrees of freedom to fail, um, those, those things, I think, will we'll, uh, we'll be waiting for them for quite a while. 
my last observation is uh, I think you'll be surprised what Lindy and Notion have to show. Um, I can't say more than that. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. I feel like you have more insider information than I do, and yet I want to take the bull side of a bet, perhaps. Like, I, we need to maybe, you know, think it through to, to really refine the decision criteria. But <laughs> you know, I'm trying to zero in on what you think would fail that I think would work at a certain point in the future. Yeah. What do you think I would think would fail? And then maybe we can kind of discuss there. <laughs> Because I'm positive, I just, I just, like, I'm much more interested in the engineering challenges than timelines. I do think people go well past the point of usefulness on their timeline discussions and their, you know, P dooms, if you will. Whenever anybody asks me about my P doom, I always say somewhere between five and ninety-five percent. And my quick, you know, add-on to that is like, and I'm not sure it's that much worth trying to narrow it down further because. 5% is enough to be very concerned about it in my mind. And like 5%, you know, if it is 95%, then the 5% chance of, you know, surviving is like worth fighting for. So kind of anything in there, you know, to me is like likely enough to be a problem. And yeah, 5% makes you a doomer, basically. <laughs> well, the real doomers would go much higher. Uh, I don't th- I don't know that they would have me in their camp as a, you know, bona fide doomer with a 5% number. Well, because because you're multiplying by, by, by infinity, right? So... rounds to one. Well, it certainly, you know, does make it for me like the issue of our time. I, I, again, I don't try to zero in on a specific number much more than that. And I'd say same thing for timelines. Like it seems like things could get really crazy in the next two to three years. It also seems still pretty plausible that we just kind of hit some sort of top out where it's like, Hey, this paradigm kind of closes in on like expert performance on a lot of things but never really achieves that sort of eureka insight capability. And we kind of stay there for a while until, you know, something else happens. I definitely think both of those are true or not true, but like plausibly true. Going back to the question of like, you know, where our expectations might differ. I mean, I I guess the stuff that Lindy has shown would be like the kind of thing that I do expect to work, you know, in in the not too distant future And, and to, you know, describe those a little bit. It's kind of like, text to automation is a lot of what the the demos are like flow will post something where he'll have like a, a pretty simple prompt that's like hey every time somebody emails me you know from this domain check this other thing you know draft me a response put that in a calendar invite you know send it here whatever right and he kind of just says all this stuff and then the platform you know just judging from the screenshot that he posts interprets that sets up this kind of automation workflow. And in theory, then it's like set up, ready to go, almost like you have a Zapier zap that you've just conjured, you know, with like two sentences. Some of them that he's shown have been reasonably complicated. And, you know, I assume that it doesn't always work or he'd probably have launched it by now. But I guess I think that that probably will start to work pretty well in the not that distant future. And I guess maybe to refine it a little bit more, it seems like once you can fine tune GPT-4, probably should be able to make a lot of those things happen, right? If you can just kind of document the reasoning, the breakdown, the planning. I mean, GPT-4 is currently doing everything. If you could really just zero it in on like the decomposition and scaffolding of kind of mundane, even if like somewhat complicated tasks, Feels like that would be enough to me to get it to work 
pretty well. I don't know. What do you think about that? I think it could work well. Uh, we just don't really know. We don't really have benchmarks for planning and prioritization yet. Um, and I, I've had actually debates with um, OpenAI people who are researching this actively. Part of my GPT 4.5 thesis is that long inference is kind of the next frontier of OpenAI. Like, um, what can you do if you gave it a year to inference instead of a few nanoseconds or milliseconds? Um, anyway, so I would say that it, it, you're exactly right in your, your mental model of where, where what Lindy does and how that interacts or overlaps with Zapier. Um, and I do think that that is uh, very useful. Uh, it's it's still not like that uh, impressive, I guess maybe. But to everyone who's ever had an executive assistant or you know wish for an executive assistant, like this is going to approach what you would want as a as a sort of always on personal assistant in your life. And I do think that that will unlock a, you know a level of productivity and quality of life to be honest that we just never seen before. Um, and the fact that we can pay you know dollars for this. Um, I think is is useful uh, for what it's worth. Um, I think Lindy's working out like it's not just reliability, but also like economics and security as well. And I do think that one of the pitches of why AI engineering is a thing is because we, the programmers, are going to be the people who put shog off in a box. Is what I is what I say, right? Like the like us fine tuning things down to smaller models, to domain specific models, is the safe approach being able to compose them into usable software systems to put humans first instead of creating sort of potentially ruinous AGI. Um, I do think that that is a movement that I can stand strongly behind and um, is, is like nobody's against it, effectively. Like we all, we all want this to happen. It cannot happen quickly enough. And when it happens, there's, not, there's no safety concerns, uh, except to the point where uh, you let agents loose on the internet with, with, uh, with no permissioning. Um, and so far, I think everyone, including Flo, uh, who, who recently had a, had a nice uh, safety discussion turn, um, I think everyone's being like, very responsible about it. Like if you interviewed Connor Lee, Connor's like one of the most like, safety-minded people. Like he split from Luther because they, they weren't safe enough. <laughs> and he has like, this very strong criticism of the AutoGPT team. Uh, and I think he's just never met them. Like all of them are very concerned about safety. Um, and, and I think uh, it is the engineers who will put shot off in the box. That's, that's my bottom line. Um, and, and understanding how to, how to wield these tools for human benefit and not human ruin, I think um, it, 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 like the, the responsibility lies very heavily on the engineers. I think I agree with everything you're saying there. I often describe myself as an adoption accelerationist and a hyperscaling pauser. In other words, like, Let's get the benefits that we can from our current systems or, you know, I think we're going to go a little bit farther than current and that's probably okay, you know, but I'm very nervous about what happens if you put a million times more compute into a model than was put into GPT-4 because I just feel like we have zero ability to, to know. Reminds me a little bit too of Eric Drexler's comprehensive AI services vision, you know, just the idea that if you have narrow perhaps superhuman, but still just fundamentally narrow systems doing all kinds of jobs in a way that can kind of become a buffer for the world against more generalist systems. And, you know, as such, like it seems really good to try to create these narrow systems that hopefully work really well. Is there something that going back to the, like, what do we expect to work and not work? What do you expect to not work? Do you, is there something that you would say like, yeah, two, three years from now, I still think, yeah, we're definitely not going to have an AI that you can get to do X. 
Oh God, <laughs> that's so, that's so. I have a tough time answering this one. So yeah, yeah, putting upper bounds on these things. Well, no, one of the reasons I pivoted is very very hard into this thing is I have to sort of update the algorithm. Whenever I've been wrong, I ask what else I, I could be wrong about, and then I, I I progressively update. It's kind of my sort of atom optimizer version of of, uh, of momentum based learning. Um, but so effectively, I, I so I think I'm very skeptical about code agents that uh, do PRs. So there's like sweep.dev and then there's a, there's a, there's a bunch of other agent type companies that will promise, you know, file an issue will, will turn into a PR, right? Uh, and it always, always works on like very, very simple sort of copy change demos and it never works on more complicated things. And I do think basically like the, the problem of software architecture and translating user requirements into code, I would, I would be happy saying like that's a five years out thing, not, not an immediate solve uh, thing. I mean, I, I still think it's a very worthy problem because AI engineer is instead of AI engineer, like AI engineer's job title, but like AI, like primarily AI engineer. Um, I do think that's a very useful goal and worthwhile goal because you know engineers are expensive, and if you can pay an AI bot that's a hundred times cheaper than a regular human engineer, but is maybe ten percent of the capabilities, then you'll probably use it for quite a few situations. I just think like yeah, the the whole promise of like issue to PR is probably going to be overhyped for a long time just because of the complexity of what software is. You know, I'm very happy to eat my words because I, I, there are quite a few friends pursuing this, this goal and more power to them, right? Like uh, all, all human progress is, is based on unreasonable people. <laughs> uh, I think MetaGPT, I don't know if you've uh, covered that paper uh, recently. I think Microsoft also had a, a similar paper come out where effectively you have AIs play different roles in a sort of agile scrum process in working towards a common outcome in software has shown better human eval results than GPT-4. But again, like you're, you're fundamentally not describing the full complexity of what software systems want to optimize for. And I don't think we have it, uh, nearly enough training data to do that. Like it's, it's very much in the world of intelligent design rather than evolution. <laughs> I think we, we can maybe refine this a little bit more uh, offline, but I think I would take the other side of that bet. I mean, there's, you know, how big of a pull request and, you know, how big of a code base. And uh, I think obviously for it to be interesting, you'd have to have enough tokens that it would be like beyond what a Claude 2 can currently handle. But even so, you know, it does feel to me like I would say in two to three years, it does feel like I would expect us to get there. And, and still on the basis of like maybe there's no like eureka moments. I had an episode not long ago with the MedPalm M authors from Google, where it's like, they're really closing in on expert level medical question answering, the ability to take a x-ray or another scan and provide like a radiology report at very close to a human level. 40% of the time, their MedPalm M x-ray report was preferred to the actual radiologist. So it's still under 50, but it's like, damn, that's getting really close, you know? So if we can get that far already on problems that hard, I do feel like in a, you know, in a two year time frame, some pretty complicated kind of prompt to PR type things should also be possible. So we can uh, maybe firm that up and put ourselves on record for a little friendly wager. Look, there's, there's, there's a, there's a bit of undefined thing here, which is like, how much do you have to specify things in order for a a decent PR to come out? And will, will that prompting effectively approach a new programming language, right? Like, you know, English is the new, hottest new programming language. But like, 
to spell things out in some level of detail to which um, the, the, the LMs will get it. Like, are, are, you, are you basically just, just programming, but in a different higher level of assertion that is kind of like a domain-specific language for LLMs? So yeah, that, that, that is open for debate. And uh, I do think like some of the approaches, um, I think I've seen GPT engineer uh, kind of approach that with their sort of pipeline YAML uh, thing. Does that count? I don't know, right? Like, because that's kind of pseudo-prompting, that's pseudo-programming already. In my mind, I want a non-technical person to just like manage a software project by themselves, right? Just filing issues. I, w- I would say that's my bar for like issue to PR as well. Non-technical person. But if you need a technical person to like come up with like some interesting YAML file and like prompts in specific ways, then it's not, your hand is too much on the, 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 the weighing scale at, at that point. Yeah. Okay. I think that makes sense. I have one more thing to, one more topic to discuss, um, which is probably going to be one of the most talked about talks that, that is coming up, which is OpenAI just confirmed their talk with me. Um, and we're going to have the first public uh, Dolly 3 and uh, GPT-4 Vision talk. I, I'm pretty excited about that because that, that is the signal. The fi- Finally, we're moving into multimodality for everything. Uh, it's going to be a wild, wild <laughs> world. And uh, I don't really know how to handle it because most of the people I have on, they're all in the text domain. And we're going to be very off balance when, when new modalities come out. Yeah, I got a little glimpse of that last week in trying to add a feature to a React app. And it was a fascinating experience. I have never, prior to this you know, session last week, programmed in React at all. I've done JavaScript before, but it's been a while since I've really been into it. And so, you know, I, my first question was, can you explain to me the general structure of a React app? And then it did. And then it kind of, you know, I, there were like a couple of file types in my repo that I asked it about. And it explained to me, you know, what those are and said, oh, well, that means you've got these libraries in place and that's what their purpose is. And then I asked it if it could give me a command that I could use to print out the tree structure of all my files. So I could paste that back in so it could see the structure of my project. So it helped me do that. And then, you know, basically just kind of worked my way through to a working module. And along the way, because the new image, I didn't really have to do this, but along the way, took a couple screenshots, fed those in as well. And I was like, man, this is really amazing. You know, it's kind of understanding like what the defect is in the screenshot and, you know, modifying the code based on, in part on the screenshot. It definitely is still at the point where like, if you look through this transcript, you'd be like, Nathan, you qualify as a technical person here. This is not, you know, at the level that you're describing, but you can see, you can kind of squint at it and, and see your way there with these screenshots where like, I want it to be doing something else and here's what it is doing, you know, and if, if it can start to deduce or infer, you know, the, the right fixes based on just like the visuals of the app not working, then it does seem like, you know, you're not too far away from, a non-technical person, maybe not as efficiently, but still kind of being able to like get, you know, something along the lines of what they want, you know, which uh, today is just like unthinkable. So for, for those interested, I think McKay Wrigley has been um, making a lot of us jealous uh, with the GPT-4 Vision Access with some examples of what you can do from like, you know, sort of the vision to code uh, sort of modality. It's not just vision, right? It's also voice. And part of my update that I, that I did for September um, and this is something that Ben Thompson of the Stratechery podcast, uh, I think he's, he's now talking on the Sharp Tech podcast. Um, he had, he had, so he had a private demo of both modalities, and I've seen both in person as well. And I kind of agree with this point, which is vision is more uh, impressive individually, but vi- uh, voice is the thing you're going to use every day, all the time. 
it's kind of an interesting inversion of expectations because I would count vision as my most important sense out of the six senses or five senses. But voice, like the ability to hear with that's hands-free and then just always on and, and uh, understanding what you, what you want. I think that's kind of a, a thing that I see a lot of people here in San Francisco building uh, with. And so my perception, I used to dismiss voice. I was like, oh, like AutoGPT has like an 11 labs. That's just for fun. Like who wants an agent talking back when I can just kind of read the text by myself way faster. But the, the fact that it's hands-free, the fact that it's just always on, and the fact that you can sort of imitate sort of human expressions, um, I think it's going to be remarkable. And um, I don't know if you've seen, have you seen that sort of the, the Russian language teaching demo of uh, GPT-4 voice mode or chat GPT voice mode? No, I haven't. So Greg Brockman tweeted this, I mean, maybe like two, three days ago. Duolingo should not exist anymore. This thing is going to teach you languages on a personalized basis much better than any other app in existence, any, any human teacher just is way more patient and way more forgiving, probably can understand, um, you know, multiple languages way better than, than you can. Uh, so I think it's, it's going to be a very, very interesting time for understanding all these new modalities, uh, because they, I'm sure they're working on more that they haven't told us. Yeah. So your comment that, you know, Duolingo shouldn't exist anymore. Uh, that is kind of what I wanted to take your temperature on next, because I feel like in some sense I've seen like a version of this movie before where, you know, going back to early Facebook days, for example, I was, I just happened to be in the same dorm as Zuckerberg in college. And I actually thought it seemed pretty dumb at first. I was like, well, I'm going to go online and put a picture of myself. And so I was a late adopter actually of, of Facebook on campus. Fun, fun fact, uh, Matt Walsh from Fixie, uh, he used to be Zuckerberg's CS50 professor. I don't, I don't know if he's ever told you that. I, that did not come up actually. Uh, that's, that's fascinating. So, so in the social network, like the, the class that Jesse Eisenberg walks in on and then like solves the question and he walks out. That was him. That was Mark Matt Walsh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Small world. <laughs> yeah, that's really funny. You know, Facebook initially had this like, come one, come all, build on our platform. You know, you get access to everybody's friends. Everything's better with friends. It's all going to be social. And then it kind of became clear over time that like, actually, we're going to build the most high value use cases natively on the platform. And, you know, the app developers can kind of like get a little bit of stuff around the edges. But today, basically, you can like log in with Facebook and that's really it, right? There's not like a lot of utility in the Facebook platform. I am wondering if we're starting to hit a moment where OpenAI is going to go a similar direction and start to kind of eat these adjacent use cases that are currently other companies. And so like companies we've talked about, right? Like Human Loop. I love the product. We're both fans, but it sure seems like from an open AI standpoint, you know, they just kind of released the like fine-tuning jobs yeah. page. <laughs> and I was like, well, what are you doing there? <laughs> That's starting to look a little like human loop, right? And then so there, I mean, there's a ton of stuff that they could do there, and it makes total sense. And it's like not they wouldn't obviously be doing it because they're hostile to anybody else in the ecosystem, but just because they're asking their users, you know, what do we what do you need? And they're just executing on that. And these are things that people need. And then I'm kind of like the same thing might start to happen with, for example, text-to-speech. You know, we've got some really good companies that have created amazing stuff. I've cloned my voice with both PlayHT and Eleven Labs. They both sound awesome. Do you have a favorite? I don't know if you're willing to go on the record. Yeah, I think it does depend on use case. I, I would say Eleven Labs is probably the favorite for ease of use right now. But 
if I was doing something more artistic or kind of creative or I wanted more emotion. Yeah, play seems to have a lot of diversity. Yeah, the, the creative direction that you can give it is a little bit more open. So I think, you know, if you're analyzing this from kind of a who's open AI posing the biggest problem for in that analysis, it would be 11 labs probably because open AI presumably is going to be more reluctant to like create the voice that's going to, you know, feed into your horror movie or your video, you know, your shooter video game or whatever, where you're going to want kind of a wide range of emotions, at least in the short term. But it seems like quite clear that they're headed for a, I would, I would imagine, tell me if you think this is off, but it seems like, you know, when I think about this dev day coming up in a month, I'm like, well, geez, they just launched voice in the app. They just launched vision in the app. You know, they just launched this preview of fine tuning. Um, they've got vector database built in natively to ChatGPT enterprise. It seems like all these things are coming to the API. Sorry, I haven't heard about the vector database. Uh, what details are, are there? I don't have a lot of details, but they have said publicly that, you know, you're going to be able to connect ChatGPT to your information, right? As an enterprise customer, basically what I understand that that translates into is you can connect your Google Drive or your Notion or your Dropbox or whatever to their system. I understand they're going to support a number of them out of the box, you know, kind of with their own connectors. And then they, you know, presumably will have some way for people to connect their own, you know, random data sources into the system as well. And, you know, as a ChatGPT enterprise user, then you can like query all your company's Google Drive assets as part of the ChatGPT enterprise experience. I don't know exactly where that is in terms of whether it's launched or not, but they've sort of said it's coming. And that much, I think, you know, is not like super secret. Beyond that, I don't have a lot of details. But I guess I just feel like all this stuff is coming to the API, right? And, and it seems like they're going to do this to serve the AI engineer because, you know, the AI engineer doesn't really want to have to go piece five different services together. Like, you know, today, if I want to create a voice assistant, I've got to like transcribe, send something into the language model, get text back, convert that to audio. And, you know, what would be a lot better is if I could just send audio into OpenAI and get audio streaming back at me, right? And similarly, like today, and I've done this and you've done it too, right? We've got to go select a vector database provider and figure out how we want to chunk our stuff and how it gets loaded in there. And then what's our query strategy? And, you know, that is its own art, you know, to figure out like, how do we generate the query for the vector database to get the right stuff? Because often like the question the user asks and the actual contents that you're trying to, you know, find similarity with, those maybe not don't line up so well. So there's like, whatever, all these kind of different tricks and techniques. And again, I what I really just kind of want is like one place to be like, here's my docs, here's my question, I'm putting it in as an image and an audio file. And by the way, I want my response back as streaming audio and just have kind of open AI handle everything, right? Like, do, am I, does that seem right? It seems like everything's, they're going to kind of just eat all these sort of things around them and the AI engineer benefits, but a lot of these companies, you know, I wonder like for a lot of the speakers that you have, as much as they have led, you know, how do they end up not having kind of been the, you know, community R&D department for open AI? Look, every large 
enough platform, eventually it comes into this tension with their developers. Um, and OpenAI is, is just coming into that right now. Apple has this long history of Sherlocking, which is an official term, I think, where uh, you know some, some very successful community app gets killed effectively by uh, an official Apple version. And um, I do think like, you know, OpenAI has promised to not compete with, with its own developers. They, they, they have said that, funny enough, in the deleted transcript of the interview that uh, Sam did with uh, Raza, <laughs> in a, uh, that, which, I, which is still publicly available, um, they promised to not compete with developers, but I don't think that promise is ironclad. I don't think they want to stand behind that. <laughs> that reminds me of the uh, Dumb and Dumber scene, not to call anybody dumb, but the, you know, these are just as good as money. These are IOUs. And uh, it's like, yeah, that, that was um, easy to say at that round table, but because they're at a thousand people now and, you know, they've, they've got product managers. 600. 600? Oh, okay. Yeah. It, it, I mean, I, I happen to have very live stats, so I, I know. Um, I would say that they always want to focus their people on the bigger things, right? Where, um, you know, there was this recent discussion about the open AI phone. This is what I've been calling it uh, with Joni Ive. Like working on a phone, that's big and ambitious, you know? Working on, uh, you know, A-B testing, fine-tuning infrastructure for the enterprise, not that ambitious. <laughs> Leave that to the lesser engineers in the community to, to pursue and, and uh, you know, I think go, go for the big things uh, and obviously try to solve problems that everybody has. Um, so I, I would say like, I think, yeah, OpenAI does, does exist in the tension with the developers that build on top of it. Probably some of the companies will be Sherlock's. Um, I, I don't think Eleven Labs would be a threat. Like the best thing that startups could do building around the sort of uh, foundation model lab ecosystem, this is not just OpenAI, it's also Anthropic and all the others. It's just prove that you're a really good engineering team because if you're good enough, they'll buy you uh, and, and you know, pull you into their, their orbit. Like money is free to these people. Like it, it, it doesn't actually matter. Are you choosing to work on interesting problems and do you ship fast enough that you're making an impact? Um, and I think 11 Labs has definitely shown that uh, they, they can do that. Um, and hopefully, you know, enough of the, the, the teams that, that I'm seeing can do that, but not everyone will make it, right? Like there, there's definitely going to be collateral damage. Uh, OpenAI, you know, has such a huge footprint that they cannot help but realign people. Like when a, lo a lot of what Langchain and Garbios used to do was JSON output validation. Right. And like now, now that it's completely useless because of OpenAI. And, and they just have to roll with it. And I think everyone's completely fine. We all understand we're building on top of shaky foundations and it's, it's kind of moving, but that's what you get for being first. You know, in terms of the, the multimodality stuff that you talked about, I do think like that will be a focus for DevDay. I don't know if they'll be, they'll have the sort of APIs ready by then, but we'll be able to see what you can build with it um, in, in, the, in the talk that um, Simon and Logan will be giving. But this comes back to Rune's post on text being the ultimate universal interface. Um, I do think like text is sort of the king modality. Yes, like whatever species synthesis is being done, whatever sort of um, text to image or image to text stuff that they're doing, like everything just kind of just passes through text and being uh, working on text is like the central pipeline. Um, I do think it has some links to it for the time being. Very happy to, to eat my words. Ultimately, everything is just tokens within a token space and text has is no particular domain of it uh, in there, except that we have much more of an understanding of what high quality data looks like in text than in everything else. Yeah, it does seem like if I had to guess, I think things are going to get a lot easier for the AI engineer over the next couple months with just some really integrated kind of high quality things, you know, such that kind of end of this year, you could probably feed in 
multiple modalities. You could kind of have them manage your custom data set powering retrieval, but, you know, powered by them. And then they can kind of stream out to you text. Yes, of course, but audio on top of that, perhaps even, you know, images integrated into the responses. And that is going to be quite a, uh, a difference and, and quite a simplification. We've got GPT-4 fine tuning as well, which is like another huge one because to the degree that you have a use case that you can't get to work well yet with any current model, you know, this could be really the thing that, that allows it to, uh, to become possible. Things that OpenAI might launch that like wouldn't compete with anybody in the ecosystem, but which might actually just be, you know, a win for everyone. One concept that I had there is login with OpenAI. And I think this is like potentially really good for a lot of developers if you are struggling with this tension between, I want to show off how sweet my product is, but to do that, I'm like taking a non-trivial hit in aggregate in terms of token cost. At Waymark, for example, my company, we estimate it's about 15 cents per user that tries the free product in hard cost to us. Some of that is open AI language models. Some of it is image understanding. We have some self-hosted stuff on Amazon. We try to process all their images that we possibly can to create the best you know, profile we can of the user, et cetera, et cetera. I'd rather that the user could kind of pay that free cost, you know, instead of us having to pay it. But obviously they would need some mechanism for that. Do you like that idea? And how would you riff on that idea? Do you see that as, as a, a plausible thing that they might introduce? Absolutely. I think it makes sense. I just don't know if it meets their bar for interesting work. I think logging with Google is effectively this equivalent thing for logging with OpenAI. And, but also like implementing SSO provider, I, I, I think it's relatively commoditized to begin with, and then gets very complex over time as you're starting to manage non-trivial amounts of user data, which maybe OpenAI doesn't want to get into the business of, right? It's all more just about choice or alignment with the mission. And I don't know if that helps them build AGI. <laughs> I, I think it's a nice uh, quality of life thing for them. Maybe they can get more information as, as people sort of, you know, use sort of universal login with OpenAI. Um, I do think that if they do build this, then they have effectively decided to become the AI cloud. I think they maybe own AI.com. Don't quote me on that. It might be them or Elon. This would make them the fourth major public cloud, <laughs> which is... Very exciting, but also maybe not like quite a research organization. Um, and I do, again, I still don't know if they want to do that. I, I do think it's like kind of a, a choice of paths, and, and they're fortunate enough that they have that luxury and capability. There's there's many things that they could point their engineers at, and I, I don't know if like building SSO for AI is like one of them. Could you just kind of offload it to Octa, Opzero, whatever, um, and, and someone else could do that as well. So I, I will say one thing, which um, I think I, I like as an idea, which is sort of context that kind of lives with you, right? Um, and, and so I think you, you maybe mentioned this a little bit. That does seem to help, but probably actually it will be character AI that does that, which, which has by far the, the longest history with working with this. Maybe not so much an OpenAI Maxi in this regard. I, I tend to describe myself as quite an OpenAI Maxi with regards to LM progress. But uh, with regards to like product, I feel like character has just kind of earned its stripes in, in trying to be a chatbot much more than OpenAI has has done, even though they haven't had you know sort of state of the art new models to to ship. 
I don't necessarily want to be an OpenAI Maxi, uh, but it's hard not to be. I write a monthly recap, right? And then uh, my OpenAI news section takes two, two screens. And then my other frontier model, you know, the, you know, the frontier model, model form, I have, I have other frontier mod, model updates and it's like five bullet points. Like it's, it's not a competition. Like <laughs> OpenAI is just running away with it so hard. Yeah. I mean, it's it, just being, being objective makes you an OpenAI Maxi. <laughs> the competition right now is just not that deep, right? I mean, you know, we said just before we started recording, we got to give love to Claude too. I would say Anthropic has definitely shown that they can create really high quality models that are not like qualitatively outclassed by open AIs, um, even though they do fall you know, a little bit short on like the MMLU benchmark and whatnot. But it's like definitely a very good experience to use and something that I do, in fact, use, especially when I need long context or whatever. But they kind of have a strategy of like not leading the market in product releases as far as I know. And so there really aren't that many other competitors out there right now that could could bring a similarly robust and just useful model forward. I mean, Google is not there. They are maybe going to get there in the not too distant future. But as of now, you know, the, the models are just not as good. And, you know, who else is there, right? So, so I haven't done enough, spent enough time on Palm 2 to actually definitively make that statement. I, I, I want to believe in Google. I, I, like, I, I've met people there. They're very smart. They have all the resources in the world. They just don't have the institutional capacity to shift something interesting for people, unfortunately, so far. I think the research is not the limiting factor there, if I had to guess right now. It's certainly not the compute either. So, And the fact that they didn't participate in the last Anthropic fundraise and, and allowed Amazon to kind of set that. Amazon just bid way higher than anyone else was willing to bid. Anthropic is probably worth like $10 billion now or something. And Google, I don't think. They will, they probably want to invest in house. I mean, I've I've talked with people involved in in the the previous rounds, and uh, they said it was much more hands off. So like Google in no way owned that relationship uh, as as strongly as Microsoft and OpenAI were. My biggest update from that was just that Gemini must be on path to work pretty well because if it weren't, then they would be bidding you know as much or more than Amazon, right? Like it seemed like they must have had some you know, inside track based on the earlier relationship, even if it was fairly, you know, just kind of friendly arm's length, whatever. If they didn't have confidence in their upcoming releases, then hard to imagine how they'd let that one go. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Battle of the Titans at stake. Hopefully the, the tell-all books that someone will write in 10 years. <laughs> uh, maybe Walter Isaacson's still around. People are wearing their rewind pendants, uh, so they're capturing everything. One of the themes that I featured for my monthly recap this, uh, yesterday was the AI Horcrux is what I was saying, or like AI pendants, which I, I saw a demo from Avi Schiffman of Tab yesterday. I've also talked with a number, a number of people also working on like kind of similar projects. I would be willing to wear one of those. So I have an aura on me right now, uh, and it's just kind of logging my, my heartbeat and whatever, but I'd love to log all my conversations and be able to talk with it. Um, these things are coming. And, um, yes, they will be multimodal. Uh, but also like I, I think, all of us having an effective digital twin that we can talk to and, and um, use, use as at least just a note-taking thing, if not just exposed to the wider world, um, I'm very excited by it and it will be built by the AI engineer. So um, yeah, I, I will feature like a, probably a, a, an entire stage next, next quarter on, I mean, uh, you know, the next time I do my summit on, on these things. Because I think in terms of like the, the B2C frontier, 
if we have a form factor that is beyond the phone, it's going to be the humane clip or the AI pendant or the watch or whatever it is that's just always on you. Yeah, that definitely seems like it's coming uh, before too long as well. So last thing I wanted to ask you about, and I've been kind of asking everybody about this, listeners to the show will have heard me pitch it before, so I'll try to do it super briefly. Concept is the AI bundle. And I'll give you just kind of brief inspiration from the consumer side and from the app developer side. Consumer side, you know, pretty obvious, right? I've got ChatGPT Pro, I've got Claude Pro, I've got Copilot, I've got Repli Ghostwriter, I've got Perplexity Pro, I've got, you know, other stuff, the Rewind and, you know, all these things, right? And my AI, my monthly AI bill is like getting up to the point where it's at or north of what my cable bill used to be. It notably doesn't cover hundreds of other apps that I like might like to use, but you know, they're all like another 20 bucks a month or whatever. And I'm like, man, do I, how many of these like $20 a month things do I want to buy? Right? So that's the consumer side on the application developer side, just, you know, representing myself as Waymark, we have this, you know, easy to use video creator. It used to be DIY. Now it's done for you with AI. You tell us what kind of video you want. Tell us who you are. We make the video. You just get to sit back and watch it. It's awesome. But we do have this kind of weird tension where, as I said, it costs us 15 cents for every user. We don't want to put it behind a paywall because we want to show it off. You know, people are most likely to buy if they can try it. Uh, but then the flip side of that is like, you know, we have the kind of classic, whatever, $30 a month plan. And we need one person to buy for every 200 free trials just to break even on our tokens, right? Before we cover any other cost or make any money whatsoever. So that's a tough situation because it puts us in this weird thing where we're like, when do we gate it? How do we gate it? And then we also see, of course, the behavior that SaaS app developers hate to see, which is where people, you know, do the thing they want to do and then immediately cancel. And there's been, you know, increasingly a lot of talk about this, like churn is pretty high. Everybody's getting a lot of new customers. Interest is really high, but churn is also pretty high. On both ends of this, it seems to me like there could be real value in some sort of bundle. And what I want, I think as a consumer and potentially also as an application developer is something where it's like, hey, pay a hundred bucks a month and get a thousand AI apps. And those would be like your flagship apps, like maybe your ChatGPT Pro, and then maybe, you know, a bunch of long tail apps like a Waymark, right? What I figure is if I'm Waymark, which I am, and I'm one of a thousand apps, and I'm like, okay, look, I, I know that, you know, there's a lot of things going on. Most, you know, most people don't need us that often. You know, we've got some power users, but we also got a lot of people that just, hey, just one off here and there, right? And they, they buy and they immediately cancel. And it's not because they didn't like the service. It's just like, I don't want to pay for this every month. So if it was a $100 bundle and we were one of a thousand apps, and let's just say we got the average, which is 10 cents a month per, you know, app subscriber, kind of in the same way that like, ESPN Classic, you know, gets a very small fraction of my cable bundle. I think we would do that, you know, and I think we would be, we could still kind of upsell the power users into higher tiers or whatever. But, you know, for every million, if it was, if that was the economics, every million subscribers that the bundle had would represent a million dollars in annual revenue to an app like Waymark, even just getting, you know, 10 cents per month per user. Can you see that happening on the supply and the demand side? It seems like there would be a lot of utility there. Obviously, it takes some doing to pull that trick off. But do you see that being something that 
could make sense? Or if not, like where would it break down? The closest equivalent would be setup. Are you familiar with setup? No, I don't think so. So there are existing software bundle type things out there. And they, they do bundle subscriptions. And I do think that they provide some value for a portion of the population. But I don't know how big this is. People are pursuing the sort of bundle economics play in traditional SaaS. And uh, maybe you can have an AI bundle SaaS play. I would say some of the core questions would be, do you get paid regardless of whether or not people use you? And I think that would very much affect whether or not the, the extra million comes to you or not. I don't know if you have a uh, quick answer to that one. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it could be managed in any number of ways. Obviously, for whoever is managing the bundle, you'd want to have some rules or framework in place to keep it somewhat sane. You know, just using the cable bundle as kind of the jumping off point. There's certain channels I never watch, you know, and, there's, and other people don't watch the channels that I watch. And my understanding is they all get a per subscriber share, regardless of, you know, whether or not I tune in. But then when it comes up for renegotiation, then there's like different levels, of course, depending on like how popular you are. I imagine something like that, perhaps like managed even purely algorithmically could work. I think you'd have to have some kind of baseline. If you're in, you're going to get something from this to make it appealing to the app developers. You know, I definitely would see it kind of the, where the actual money flows. I would see shifting around over time with shifting usage patterns. Yeah, exactly. So um, I would say like there, there's difficulties there. Uh, there's difficulties with regards to uh, the differences between like what a bundle of a newsletter or a bundle of content would, would look like. I would say that the people who have probably thought about this the most is Nathan uh, Bashaw, who has now started Lex Page as, as, as an independent um, startup, and Ben Thompson of Stratechery, who's written a lot about the sort of media and cable bundle. So they would be much more clear thinkers on this than I am. And I do like the, the, the sort of magic of bundle math, right? They say you get more choice, you pay one, one fee, uh, and then the people also have, uh, the, the suppliers also have more predictable income um, and, and the share and access to the income without, and, and sort of pooling that distribution in terms of uh, getting people to pay and then uh, getting to people to understand what, what, what they are and try them out. Um, I will say like for SaaS, the, the incremental difference between SaaS and content businesses is that SaaS people typically really, really want to own their, their customer base. When I want to change uh, pricing, like, do I have to get your approval as, as Mr. Bundle Guy? And I'm not, you know, not really going to be happy if, if like, you push back on something. And so there, I think there's a lot of these like, sort of internal policies that, that happen when it comes to sort of B2B. Uh, and then like, pile that on top of, you know, I'm very immersed in the B2B or enterprise infrastructure environments in San Francisco. Like I, I like that's where my background is coming in, in terms of developer tools. And all of them are not going after the $10, $20 a month subscription, right? They, they want to go after the 10K, 100K, uh, million dollar a year contracts uh, that they want to get from other businesses. So effectively, this is a rounding error for them. Yeah, I would not expect like your human loop kind of infrastructure players probably to get into something like this. Yeah, it would have to be kind of the the waymarks. Prosumer, B2C, yeah. Yeah, all these, you know, there's a million of these, like I recently had one of the founders of Gamma on the show and, you know, just, it's like, I don't make that many slides, but when I do, it's cool, right? But I, I feel bad if I'm just using their free version and, you know, not paying them anything, but I'm also like, I don't necessarily have, you know, hundreds of dollars to drop on every app that I'm interested in trying 
on an annual basis. So, you know, I either kind of sign up and cancel or I just don't sign up. It's probably not going to happen, but I kind of, uh, something about this feels like it should happen to me. So I kind of can't uh, let go of it just yet. Well, the, the real question is, what is the minimal viable version of this that you can test to, to find out, right? Like, and that's something that one of my mentors um, has always given me as, as sort of just life and career advice, which is whenever you feel like you have this idea or whenever you're stuck with a fork in the road, what is like the minimal viable step to gain more information for you to be sure? Because either you could sit there and like, you know, have this like, it could work, it could not work, I don't know. Like, the only way is to take steps. And so like, I don't know how to size this down because like, there is a certain appeal to scale of these bundles, but uh, maybe like get five things together and then see if, see if that works. Yeah, I think one of the, the big challenges with this is it does feel to me like you would need anchor products in the bundle to make it compelling. If somebody said, hey, you know, for 10 bucks even, you know, you can have 300 apps you've never heard of, then I'd be like, eh, I'm not sure I need that. But for a hundred bucks, if I could have, you know, ChatGPT Pro and Claude Pro and, you know, Perplexity Pro and a bunch of other things that I've never heard of, then I'm like, yeah, I might go for that because those three, I really, you know, I already know I want. And then, you know, whatever else I'll kind of discover along the way. Anything else you want to talk about today before we break? No, that's a real pleasure. Um, I have just been uh, enjoying the podcast. Uh, I would say just keep up what you're doing. There's always room for these sort of long-form deep dives into AI. And um, I, you know, I love the passion that you're taking to approach the space. I'd love to have you on at my next uh, conference. Well, thank you very much. Uh, obviously, the feeling is mutual. Why don't you um, give us the details of the summit and uh, what people can do if they still want to get a ticket and get there? Yeah. Um, I mean, tickets are completely sold out, but you can get an online ticket uh, where it's, it's basically the, the live stream plus the Slack uh, community discussion at ai.engineer. I really love these short domains, by the way. So just like, yes, engineer is a TLD. So we, we bought ai.engineer. So we have a AI engineer summit, newsletter, job board. The podcast is latent.space. Cool. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Swix, thank you for being part of the cognitive revolution. Thanks for having me.